Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Sinyard. We're on our trek through Romans, unpacking the many microaggressor moments uh, in Paul's head. And this is the end of his ministry, and I think everything he's saying is just outlandish and scandalous and, and should trouble us. But often we teach it as if it's reasonable and makes sense. And, uh, you know, I think there's wonderful aspects of this that just uh, that gloriously does not make any sense and I think we need to hear it okay so we're in Romans 3 uh, Romans 3 10 so let me just read this and then we'll we'll get into it I mean this this one we're really picking fights here but I think we're absolutely accurate and if we understood this better I think we'd worship louder all right Romans 3 10 and following as it is written there is no one righteous not even one he's quoting the Psalms there is no one who understands no one who seeks God All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, Switch to uh, shift to 321. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All right, we're not doing verse by verse. We could, but we're really kind of mining out the microaggressors, but it really does affect how we interpret the entire verse. And this is a very familiar passage, particularly Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we left a whole bunch out in the middle. But the theme is that there is now, where there wasn't before, a real source of righteousness, okay? Nobody had it before, and based upon the the next verse 11, it appears to be a function of being able or willing to understand or being able or willing to seek God, right? Something about understanding and seeking God and righteousness kind of go together. All right, so let's look at that. To understand the Greek suneimi, defined by one dictionary as having an intelligent grasp of something that challenges one's thinking or practice. You could say understand or comprehend. Uh, so it's something that actually changes your actions, your motivation, your, your philosophy. So there has been no one born on the planet who innately got this whole plan of God, who understood, who understood the whole point of creation, the end goal, the plan, right? What plan are we talking about? Here it is that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit had conspired to pursue those, to go and get those, to go and gather those, to romance those, those who fell shockingly short of any and all standard that the Creator established. And not only pursue, but to adopt and to intimately place in their loving arms forever. Though none of us came anywhere close to deserving it, or in any way could argue that we were even making up any ground, or even understood what was going on in a way that changed our behavior. Not really. Look, that ticks me off. That's humiliating. That's a microaggressor. It's humbling. And so here it is. Let me unpack the microaggressor. It's maddening. It's humiliating. And I want to reject it out of hand. Think of a spectrum zero to 10. And 10 is Jesus. 10 is doing everything that God, the creator commands, wants, Reasonable stuff like loving God and loving others, right? That, that's reasonable. 
And, and that's perfection. Ten is doing it at a level that we were supposed to. And remember, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be respectful here. God is a screaming perfectionist. So if I got to 9.8, which, by the way, I am not claiming, that's not passing. Romans 3.23, everybody falls short of this goal of what is required to earn any kind of positive, eternal, glorious relationship in this eternal dance. You know, we, we don't even get a pat on the back if, unless we're a 10. And that's everybody. And one on that spectrum is Satan. Because Satan knows the plan. That's what we understand. He knows what's at stake. But he's an Audi forever. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to read his brain, but that'd be resentful to me. Uh, he, and he wants as many Audis as possible with him and to intentionally spit in God's face, to mess up the plan, undermine everything that he does. So he understands, but he foolishly is trying to wreck it. And so we're on that zero to 10 spectrum, not a zero or 10. So here we go. Here's your exercise. Where would you might, where might you put the most godly person you can imagine? All right, think of that person. I mean, you can pick Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, some missionary you know, Paul, uh, so would you say seven? Well, you know, let's be humble here. Let's say 5.5, right? Better than half, but, we, we, you know, we don't want to go overboard. So let's say there are 5.5. Where would you put yourself? I mean, you would put yourself somewhere between a zero and that. So would you say a four, a three, or a two? Well, no. And here's Paul again. It's an in-your-face microaggressor that speaks to your and my arrogant denial of just how bad our lot is. Romans 3, verse 12, all have turned away, right? All of us. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. I mean, you would think he's describing Satan, right, at the zero. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Yeah, it sounds more and more like Satan. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Really, ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's not talking about them. He's talking about me before God found me. This is us. So if Satan's a zero, Hitler's a 0.001, you and I on the zero to 10 scale are still well under one. We're fractional when God finds us. I got to tell you, that's a... That's a That'll mess you up if you think about it too much, because we've been told for so many years, secular humanism, that we're good, basically. Oh, you know, we've been messed up by our environment and culture, but, you know, push comes to shove, we take enough goodness classes, we're, we're pretty good. But no, we are at best fractionally successful on this righteousness scale. Well, to quote one secular humanist, I do not like this, Sam, I am. All right, back to righteousness. And this is apparently, in God's point of view, and in Paul's point of view, one of the core goals for all of our earthly strivings. God's plan, right? You want to know what God's will is? It's for you to, to have this righteousness. Simple. You don't have to ask the question anymore. This is his will, to, to have this righteousness. So we could ask you at a life performance review or, you know, one of those life performance classes in college, how are you doing on this righteousness scale? Do you have it or don't you? How much do you have? Uh, some of you older folks know the game of life. Everybody starts at start. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> you add spouse, children. You start collecting stuff, doing business deals based on dice rolls. Sounds about right. And at the end of the game, you all cash out and whoever has the most cash wins. 
that makes sense to me. Sounds like America. But biblically, that's not the goal. Biblically, whoever has the most righteousness wins. In a sense, we'll get back to that. So, how are you doing? How's your stack of righteousness? And no worries. Paul says that if you don't have an answer to the question, that makes sense because nobody understands that life this way, right? Nobody understands, really understands this thing called righteousness and the process to get righteousness. It just befuddles us. Um, our brains get tired thinking about it. So we're traveling through this game of life and we don't understand the instructions. We don't understand the goal. But our lot's even worse. It turns out that all of our striving could be summarized really badly. And here it is. See, not only uh, are we not understanding the path, we also aren't seeking God. <laughs> well, that's a bold, harsh statement. And the word for seeking is exateo. It's an exerted effort to secure something, to desire something, right? To really want this. And, it, and what? Well, God and, and subsequently righteousness. So what's the link? Well, we miss this big time. When we speak of righteousness, let me say when Paul speaks of righteousness. No, no, no. When we speak of righteousness, we'll start there. We almost 100% of the time when it's preached from the pulpit, the discipleship classes, we're referring to, are you doing good things? Are you doing right things, godly things, things that God wants, commands? And by the way, that implicitly, maybe explicitly, gives rewards for success and punishment for falling short of success. It's a function of your actions and choices and motivations. Do you do righteous things? And then, if so, you get credit in the First National Bank of Heaven somehow. So, in some way, it is that. Um, all right? I mean... There are verses that point that direction, or at least that's one of righteousness's implied meanings, but I'm going to suggest it's a secondary meaning. It's not the core meaning. The Greek dikaio and dikaiosune, as well as Hebrew equivalent, sadik and sadika, are relational words primarily. It's about, it's a function of relationship. That's interesting, right? It's at its core, it's how one would describe a healthy, vibrant, life-giving relationship where partners care for each other, love each other. They're right with each other. We even use that in common parlance. They don't have to worry about being betrayed or let down. They trust the other. They desire the best for the other. They worked for the best of others. There's no shame. It's only honor and honoring. So a righteous person is primarily a community-minded person who puts the needs and care of others over their own, right? This is at the heart of mind of Jesus in Philippians 2. This is the mind of Christ. Boaz, uh, in the story of Ruth, was a righteous man, not just because he did right things, but he actually cared for the poor, and he left gleanings, and he cared for Ruth, and he married her at great financial personal cost. Jesus is righteousness incarnate, and it's in his DNA. Why? Well, we can see he wanted to sacrifice everything for others and did. So Jesus is 100% righteousness incarnate. Not because he did right things, he did, but because he loved and honored and that motivated uh, him to do good things, right things for others. So what about righteous good works? Well, you see how this works now. If I care for you and care for your well-being, why would I steal from you? Well, I wouldn't. Or, or lie to you or gossip about you. I wouldn't. 
My motivation would not just be to do right as a rule, right, as, as an identity thing or to earn something. It's because, you know what, I really want your well-being. And so Paul is laying out his case. No one wanted that kind of relationship with God. Let me say it again, because this is a microaggressor big time, capital letters. No one wanted that kind of relationship with God. Now, this makes sense, right? Because don't mistake, there are other people who did good things more than me. There are people who sacrificed for others more than me. There were other people who died for others heroically more than me. But Paul is saying that no one in the history of the planet wanted to be in that kind of relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. No one pursued that. Right? He wants me to find what that is. No one even looked for it, longed for it. Not really. Nobody sought that. Not just God, but this relationship, this righteousness with God. Now, we have all pursued, we who are Christians have pursued some counterfeits of this, but not the relationship the high, 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 scandalous relationship that God imagines for us. Well, why? Well, I began to spell that out in the last blog. My brain, my beat-up brain, my PTSD, traumatized brain can't fathom such a ridiculously good relationship. Um, it's it's almost it's so good it's dangerous, right? It's such a height. Just to think about falling from that height is too scary for me. Because look. Again, with all respect, God is a perfectionist, a 100% perfectionist. He is a wild card, right? My midbrain knows that. And, and my midbrain knows that I regularly fall short of loving him back and, and receiving his love. And the idea of looking into his face, right? He's already established that relationship, but me, I'm cautious. The fear of seeing disappointment in his eyes or disgust or critical look or anger is too much when I think about it. By the way, two-thirds of Christians, according to a study, believe that when they finally see God face-to-face, he will be disappointed in them and disgusted, and that causes them fear. I'm not alone. So that critical, nasty voice in my midbrain figured that denial, distraction, or even religion, right, as long as it doesn't really include the personal presence of God— any of those things would satisfy, and I can call that righteousness, but it isn't. Not, not the biblical righteousness. I can even do good works, right? And say, I've got righteousness, but not the biblical one, not the one that God has, has imagined for us, right? We have to know the end of the game. So God, as I said more last time, had to pursue me because I'm running the other direction. I'm looking away. I'm looking down at the ground. I'm definitely not looking up in his face. That would just be too frightening. He had to send his spirit ahead to baptize me, right? That's last blog, because, you know, I might just faint out of fear if he grabbed me, held me in his arms, and made me look up, right? And saw him coming to inspect my life, my inner thoughts, my inner motivations. You kidding me? That's why I've been wearing masks in the first place. I would never, ever look up. I, I couldn't do it humanly. Too much to lose. Too risky. Romans 3.21. But now, a righteousness, we're going to unpack this, from God, right? There it is. Apart from the law, meaning me doing something in order to earn it, has been made known, has been manifested, didn't see it before, but oh, now I see it, to which the law and the prophets testify. Well, I can see it now. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All right, let me unpack that so we understand what Paul is saying. But God imagined... A, and birthed a unique relationship between he and, and me. 
it's mysterious, it's permanent, it's perfect in its intimacy and adoration. No judgment, no shame. And his face never stops positively shining towards me now. I didn't do anything to get here. That would just be too absurd to think that I deserved it or earned it or could stay in here very long. I was stuck on a different path when God pursued me and tackled me and wed me to himself long before I accepted its validity, long before I believed it was real and true, long before I could breathe in the midst of it. This relationship is from him and is accomplished by him. All I did was eventually accepted it, believed it to be so. Well, most days. A big step for me with my beat up mid-brain. It required heavenly faith, right? So this believing it to be so, acknowledging it to be so, is is a fruit of the Spirit. I didn't even have that. That's how far off I was. It didn't come from my mid-brain. It didn't come from my prefrontal cortex because it's incomprehensible, Paul writes in Ephesians 3. This is what spiritual faith, the fruit of the Spirit, does. And the Spirit gives it to me so that I can actually enjoy this relationship. Otherwise, I'd be too frightened. And at some days, I can look up and see his face shining and feel it. I can feel loved. I was not in a relationship when he found me and pursued me. And and then, unbeknownst to me, I was in the most amazing relationship with God, better than any relationship I've ever had or ever read about or ever saw a, a Disney movie about. So I can't brag. I didn't do a thing. And that's part of the microaggressor in our human a secular, humanistic, immersed world, we have to earn stuff. We have to believe we deserve it for it to be credible. And we have to choose to enter relationships. Otherwise, what about our free will? Because we first want to, right? That's what honorable people do. And then we pursue that relationship. So God comes a step, we come a step closer, then God comes a step. It's a dating process, right? No, not this one. Uh, So, I can't say I'm in that relationship because I sought it. I'm in that relationship because I wanted to be in it. <laughs> uh, right? This, is, this one's humiliating. I'm in this relationship because God wanted it. I'm in this relationship because God wanted me to be there. I didn't. I was an enemy. I was headed the other direction. I have to tell you, I'm shame prone, and that is so hard to say in public. I was far more lost than than, than I want to imagine. So I could be angry and my nose could be out of joint, except, right, God knows me. God puts the Holy Spirit in my inner being. Long before I asked, I never asked for him. And he baptized me to want to be here in the arms of God a little. And then he gives me daily power, which comes from God, to begin to access the grasp, the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ, Ephesians 3. And that's for me, for him, for others. So... Even though I get in it, God's continually shaping me by giving me stuff that I don't naturally have. It's not like I learn. And so now, no matter how I get here, I'm more and more good with it. But like I said, nothing about this is my doing. I don't get any merit badge for this one. I mean, earning crowns, I've heard people talk about that. I've, I've studied the verses. I mean, really? I didn't do a thing to earn any kind of crown. I'm thinking that Jesus earned the crowns and is handed to me and I toss them at his feet because he did it anyway. <laughs> I'm not here because I figured that God was looking for someone really suitable 
right? You know, a suitable match. He goes to a celestial matchmaker and he goes, well, you know, Bill's a diamond in the rough and he'll grow and he'll learn. He just needs a little teaching. He just needs a little classes on, on spiritual etiquette. No, no, no. A little discipleship just makes me into to somebody who's a little more arrogant and think I earned this thing. Um, there's nothing that I'm going to do that's going to prove that God made a good choice. <laughs> yeah, right? That, that I'm going to be a faithful son worth, worth God's choice and election. Nothing can be further from the truth. I will eternally be grateful that he did this. And also, by the way, it should change my posture here because I can't judge anybody. I can't judge anybody who's in this embrace. I can't judge anybody who aren't in this embrace yet. Because there's nothing I can do. I can't tell them, well, it's your fault. I mean, really? I can't say that I'm somehow more worthy, that I made better choices. Here's what you need to do. It was all done to me. So, does this begin to help? And this might be a little subtle, so we might have to think about it here a couple times. Does this explain why Pharisees were so far off the mark? Because they were righteous. They were committed to righteousness, meaning doing good things, godly things, in order to fulfill the law, to earn this identity of being righteous men, to earn favor and blessings from God, all pretty good, right? To coax God back into the presence of Israel. But Paul writes that they totally missed the game. They totally missed the overall objective, at least from heaven's perspective. So so they were pursuing righteousness, this relationship, but they were doing it all wrong. This, what, this was the counterfeit. What God was offering was a perfect relationship to faulty people with all the trimmings to people who can't earn it, won't earn it, didn't earn it. God loves and pursues sinners. Failures, enemies, the unrighteous, the unclean, the outcast, the aliens, those who were law busts, right? And and it's not so far off the mark to say that the Pharisees, you know, they were like me. Their brains and mine, mid-brains, are not so very different. And they would have been and would be very uncomfortable with the notion of looking up into the shining face of God to see how much he loved them as they were, because they knew better than that. This would scare them to death. They knew you don't look up in the gods. They knew God was a perfectionist. They knew they fell short. And so this would have scared their sandals off to be all of a sudden to wake up and be found in God's arms, just like me. Right? They may have measured their works righteousness as better than others, better than mine, but they would be wildly uncomfortable with daring to look up in the, in the shining face of God and expecting to be adored. Uh, whether they did right or not, right? Whether they were successful Pharisees or not, whether they were on the top level tier of Pharisees versus the second level tier, right? We get up to top tier and then all of a sudden we start experiencing the pleasure of God. And then all of a sudden God gives it to them uh, any tier. Wow. And how do I know? Well, God does come to them face to face. He smiles at them. He looks them in the eyes. He invites them close. He tells them about this kingdom that all can enter, and they kill him. Have you ever thought that's a wildly over-the-top reaction? Am I right? Uh, I'm suggesting that it's internalized shame and guilt and fear of falling short of God. And in particular, fear of being close to God, where he would really look in their inner motivations and inner mask. Pharisees have masks. And to have a God who knows everything being that close, 
Man. Well, we're all recovering Pharisees, particularly we evangelicals and Protestants and Catholics as well. Paul writes that nobody has this righteousness, this relationship, this perfect relationship in mind ever. Uh, and by the way, it's the relationship that only the Father and Son and Spirit have enjoyed. And that makes sense that they're in it, but none of us uh, imagine that we could be part of that. We would have always been on some kind of probation, but not so. The Father loves me right now as much as he loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. That's ridiculous. And I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. And I'm honestly, as I think about it, my brain is so uncomfortable with it. The inner critical voice, the beast, has a field day 24-7 reminding me that I don't belong. And he's right, except God commanded, he so bead that I'm in this relationship, and he loves me as I am. He shoved me in this relationship, which would naturally scare anyone, baptizes me to begin to accept it as true, gives me faith, and it's day-to-day experience of that spirit baptism, that faith, the capacity to actually accept, to believe, to relax in God's arms a little bit, hopefully a little more every day. Understanding will probably come in heaven. So the microaggressor, I would love to think that I pursue this relationship, this righteousness, but it's not true. I would like to think that I spent at least some time pursuing a romantic relationship with God, but that's not true. I would like to think that I had something to do with it, but that's not true. I even need power and faith from God, from the Spirit, daily, or my midbrain, egged on by that critical beast voice, moves me to denial regularly. See, I'm still totally in need of daily miracles. I'm not self-sufficient. Yuck. I hate being dependent, it's, and it's worse than I thought, but in the end, that's good news. God is the trustworthy, capable one in this relationship, not me. He's guaranteed it all, not me and my performance. So I'm going to fail, but he will not. And, and I'm not going to experience it 100% till heaven. I'd just, I'd just explode. I'd wet myself. But I, I can experience it more and more now. And the Spirit has to do it in me, right? Uh, Ephesians three fourteen and again uh, following. I have to ask. And look, if you're struggling with this and you and you want a shot in the arm, check out the-dance.org. I mentioned it last time. It's a two-hour online experience that just hammers my midbrain with this. It, it applies the gospel to my midbrain. Uh, check it out. Uh, highly recommend it to people over and over and over. That was the point of it, is to become more aware of this righteousness that has been lovingly shoved down our throat and and changes everything, Uh, humbles us, gives us a humiliating posture, and then gives me access to feeling loved by God. All right. More next time. Take heart, child of God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.